Remember to celebrate milestones as you prepare for the road ahead. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Between Us, Make Every Conversation Count. I'm your host Santosh Kumar. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about chasing your dreams. We all have dreams and we all have the ability to dream. The fact is that not everyone has the willingness to truly chase their dreams. So what does that mean? A recent survey of successful entrepreneurs found that 95% of them pursued their dreams despite obstacles highlighting the importance of persistence and determination in achieving success. This also suggests that the ability to overcome setbacks and stay focused on one's goal is a critical factor in achieving success as an entrepreneur. If you recall from one of my earlier episodes on manifestation, I had said that the only way we can truly manifest our dreams is when we stay true to it and when we believe in it. You know, a dream can be very powerful. It can make you strive and persevere past what people expect of you, and sometimes even past what you expect of yourself. A dream may start off small, but dreams have been known to do many big things, from changing the life of one individual to changing the entire world. Walt Disney once said, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. Some criticized him, and laughed at the magnitude of what he believed he could achieve. However, Walt Disney was able to fulfill his dream by disregarding comments about how his dream was impossible. His dream may not have turned out the same way he thought it would, but by simply chasing a dream, he was able to achieve unimaginable things for himself and for so many others. I firmly believe everyone should have dreams to chase. For even if you fall short of the place you would like to be, take a moment Look behind you and see how far you've come. Dreams can push you and motivate you to reach heights that you have only ever imagined. So in today's episode, I have a very, very interesting and inspiring guest, Dr. Avanti Purohit. She's a certified anesthesiologist who finally decided to follow her heart, chase her dreams of becoming a fashion designer. Avanti was trained to be a doctor and she was practicing up until 2020 before she decided that her calling was somewhere else. Actually, she always knew what her calling was, but I guess sometimes in life, we take a little bit of pause and we reflect and we ask ourselves, is this really what we want to do? So without further ado, let me introduce you all to my dear friend, Avanti Purohit. So welcome to the show, Avanti. It's Thank wonderful you. to have you. So let's begin with your childhood, your growing up years and the city of Pune. So I was in Pune up until, so obviously I was born and brought up in Pune. I've been in Pune up until I did my first year of MBBS. So it's probably what, 20, 21 years. Mm -hmm. um, growing up in Pune, I think I had a wonderful childhood. I had 
probably the most indulgent parents that you could think of. Parents who were extremely present in my life, whether it had things to do with my schooling, whether it had things to do with my extracurriculars. I think I had a very... Um, a sort of a wholesome kind of a well-rounded childhood. I had a mother who I was extremely close to, a father who was my confidant. I think I've grown up learning that conversations can solve anything. So whether it's boys, whether it's careers, whether it's the class you want to join, whether it's the books you want to read. So I think, you know, in terms of parenting, I think I had the best, the most mature and the most emotionally involved parents. As far as the city goes, I think, you know, I've always had this because I've, I'm now in Bombay since the last 15 years and I've been in Pune for Lexi, the first 20 years of my life. I've always had this. People always ask me, which one do you like better? Uh, I think Pune for me is home. So Pune for me, being a small city, you know everybody. Even in my schooling, even during my schooling, we didn't have the dirty peer pressure. We, we had, you know, a healthy competition. We were all friends with each other. Money, status, all those things never mattered. You met up in school, you met up for coffee, you played games and that was it. It was very innocent. It was very laid back. It was very um, just pure and just simple, you know. So my upbringing and my life in Pune in general overall has been, I think it's been the best years of my life, to be very honest. And I've enjoyed myself and I miss those days. So when did you develop your habits of reading? Is it something which naturally came up or uh, you had books around you growing up? Yes, I did have books around me while growing up because my father is one of the most voracious readers you would come across. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was an extremely well-heeled, well-read man. So it's probably because of that because we had books. I saw books growing up and things were like gifts were always books. So birthday gifts uh, were books. What kind of books? So was? growing up, so, you know, I read a lot of Enid Blyton. So I don't act exactly have... Um, I don't have a correct or maybe precise memory of what all I read, but Enid Blyton, when I was a child, was pretty predominant. I remember loving Mallory Towers when I was growing mm -hmm. up. I, it was one of my favorite books. And then, of course, you had Harry Potter. Then you grew up, you had Robin Cook, you had Dan Brown, you had... I used to love uh, James Herriot. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. read. He's yes. basically a veterinary doctor. I used to love his books. Mm -hmm. So those I read uh, growing up. Then you had... Uh, Lee Child, I probably read most of the Lee Child books. So mm -hmm. Jack Reacher was one of my favorite characters. And then eventually I think now, you know, I've sort of grown out of the fiction, crime genre. I now love reading books about history or maybe memoirs. So the recent memoir that I read was Tara Westover, Educated, the book's name is. And two books that I've left right now halfway through because my exams came through were A Hundred Years uh, War in Palestine and Anarchy. So those were the two books that I was sort of reading parallelly, which I've left. I guess they're the pretty relevant to today's times. Yes, exactly. Yes. Tell me something about uh, your school days. In in terms of the school you went to, the friends you made. So um, I went to Abhinav Vidyalaya, which is which isn't a convent, but obviously it was an English medium school in Pune. And the fun part was that you know we never had our classes shuffled. So the same 60 of us, minus a couple here and there, you know, few went away, few sort of joined. We were the same batch of 60 from kindergarten to 10th standard. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, it, it was beautiful. We never got shuffled. So we were thick and we still are. We're still in touch. We, we still have a group where we're all in touch. We know what's happening with each other, even though we don't meet quite often. So, yeah. And then you moved to your MBBS program, yes. right? So I had to take a gap year in the middle. Because mm -hmm. I did not really get a seat in the first attempt. 
And that's really important because I had to take a gap year again after my MBBS to get through my PG. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I have been thinking about it. It's important to know that I've spent years doing what I've done, you know, I've, in, in terms of medicine. But I, honestly, that really hasn't deterred me from switching because I've heard this. I, I you know, I had my mother also ask me, you've spent so many years in medicine, you took gap years. Do you think you still want to switch? So that's exactly why it's important for me to mention that I had not one but two gap years. One was prior to my MBBS and second was after my MBBS. So the gap year you took was primarily to study study and get into the school of your choice? Yes, yes. I frankly didn't get any. I mean, I had a very horrible rank. So I wasn't getting through anywhere. It's hmm. not like a matter of choice. I wasn't getting through anything. I was probably getting dental or maybe not even that. So uh, for MBBS. So yes, I took a gap and then I got through uh, MBBS in Talega. So was MBBS the only thing you wanted to pursue? Was it a personal choice? Was it driven from people around you, your family? What was it? Because a lot of that. A, a lot of these factors. So essentially, you know, I've had this, these conversations with my husband so many times. You know, you're 16 when you're essentially choosing a career. At least our time in terms of what you wanted to study had to be decided before you joined classes in 11th. So you're essentially 15 when you decide if you want to take science, arts or whatever it is. And I think it's super young because you can't really understand the ramifications of a career choice until you're way into your 20s. So I feel like because I was a straight A student, that just seemed like a very normal path to take. Oh, you're taking science because I don't know if back then I had the guts or my parents would have supported me thinking about taking arts. Somehow there was this notion that... I don't know why it existed, but there was that notion. So this is interesting. So you're saying that your decision to move into medicine was largely driven by the fact that you were a straight A student. Yes. And you weren't sure that your parents would yes. support, but you've never had the conversation with them. You never really told them that I'm thinking of pursuing something else. No. We had a conversation regarding careers, but it was a very boxy sort of a very... In terms of, okay, this is these are your options or these, this is what you could think of. Or law, engineering, science, doctor. You can, you can think of biotechnology and microbiology. But none of these creative fields have ever come up in these kind of discussions. Probably also because my parents themselves weren't really exposed to those kind of things. I don't know if they knew that you could make a career. Or I don't know if it was the support necessarily or their lack of knowledge in terms of, say, interiors or architecture or you know, painting or not that I was a good painter, but just, you know, the, the creative fields. We never, that was never an option that was presented to me ever. So there's this notion and, and, you know, I might sound a little stereotypical here, but if you are a straight A student, you either love to read books mm -hmm. or write mm -hmm. or be completely into your studies. Yeah. Right. Yes. Were there anything else? which you'd love to do while growing up? Anything artsy? So fashion was something that was always on my mind. I think my introduction to fashion was probably when I was six, seven years old. I mean, I didn't know if I could actually make a career out of it, but I definitely wanted to learn and know more about it. I think, like I said, my introduction to fashion was very early on. You know, I used to accompany my mother to her, to her designer's studio, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how we were a family that never really went to or very rarely went to department stores to buy outfits. It's funny because back then we didn't have Zara's and H&M's. You had shops on Lakshmi Road, you had shops in camp. That's where you went. You got ready-made frocks. So Lakshmi Road and camp. 
yeah. both from the city of Pune, yes, right? Yes, both from yeah. the city of Pune. But somehow, my dad had his own tailor where he would get his pants and shorts done. My mom had her own designer. So, right since I was a kid, I think I've you know had that exposure of going to a designer, seeing what a designer actually does, and somehow I have such vivid memories of the designer that my mom used to visit. She still visits her even today. She has her studio at Prabhat Road in Pune, and a very eclectic dance studio. You know, at the entrance, you would be greeted by this massive stone basin, which used to have like this water and fresh flowers from her garden, candles and things like that. And then you would walk in, you would have racks of clothes on the right-hand side, you know, ready to be sent to their respective people. You would have a little space on the left where tailors basically sat. So there's this constant humdrum of, you know, sewing machines while you were basically chit-chatting with her. And then there would be like a narrow alleyway you would go in and then there would be a space where you would all sit be surrounded by textiles. You would have these low seatings and then she would sit with her paper and pen and start. And back then, you didn't have visual references. You didn't have Pinterest. You didn't have things which you could show, right? So whatever my mom wanted, she would like she would basically describe. This woman would draw, you know, sketches, essentially. And then she would start removing, you know, textiles. Textiles that she, now I know in hindsight. Obviously, back then as a six-year-old, you don't know what textiles are. Uh, you just remember being surrounded by colors. But then she would, you know, whip up textiles and then she would start pinning them onto her paper and then you would, it would just come to life. She would also source these little trinkets, jewelry, from Rajasthan and from Jaipur and places like that. And she would then start matching. So it was so brilliant. You would get an outfit and then you would get jewelry along with it. You know, she would pair things up. And I remember how that... You, you know, essentially made me feel, it used to make me so, I don't know, at home, happy. Even today when I go to a place like Mangaldas Market, which is like hot, crowded, I still feel amidst textiles and stores and colors, I still feel the same feeling that I used to when I used to sit in her place. So I think my introduction to fashion was then, the little inception or seeds of inception. It was probably then. So as you grew up, yeah. You continued visiting these stores. Absolutely, with your mom. absolutely. Up until probably I got married. Absolutely, yes. My mother still goes to her. And not just that, you know, my mother herself is a great knitter. She does embroidery at home. So she does Kasuti embroidery, which is native to Karnataka. So she would have people's saris, family members would send saris and hankies and dress materials. So it's not just in stores. I've seen this at home. She was a complete embroidery whiz. And even, even growing up, right up until probably middle school, my sweaters were all hand-knitted by my mother. So I think it's just been in my sort of blood ever since I've grown up. You know, I've, I feel like I'm revisiting my childhood. So I spent the first 13 years of my life with my nani, mm -hmm. with my grandmom. And I learned knitting. I learned how to wash clothes. Wow. I learned how to make chapatis. Mm -hmm. Same here. Yeah. Uh, all of those uh, from, from her. And every time I would do a task, she would give me a coin. And yes. that is how I learned. And this is this is really interesting. So you said that as you grew, your interest in clothes, in fashion grew. Yes. But that was never uh, something which you thought of as you would make it as a part of your profession. Nope. You never nope. knitted anything while growing up? Nope. Never. Never. I haven't really, I never indulged in the crafts back then. No, it was only classes and, and I'll be really honest. I used to really not have any time left. You know, I used to probably be home only for dinner and sleep and maybe homework. Even reading took up a hit. My reading habits plummeted after I started 
anything that was related to med school, even during med school, because whatever time was spare was either spent reading and studying or sleeping or resting up. So all of these kind of creative things that I probably would have liked to do never really materialized. So if medical school wouldn't have happened, still no fashion, still no, no clothes. No, no. Those were not the conversations we were having at all at home. Nope, it wouldn't have happened. Okay. In fact, I think, honestly, even for myself, I don't know if it sounds ignorant or naive, but the pragmatism or the, the possibility of turning fashion into a career for me in my mind has been quite recent. Let's just say in the last five to seven years. For me, it was when I got exposed to the world of online shopping, slow fashion brands on Instagram, is when I realized that there are young girls, probably 22, 23, just fresh out of NIFT, NIFT, National Institute of Fashion Technology, who were opening their brands and who had a loyal audience. You know, so you could do it is something that I realized. And there were there are people also who don't have any background in fashion, who have very successful brands. So I think, like I said, the, the logistics of it is something that I realized in the last five to seven years, not before that. In fact, I, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, Deepak, my husband, where I was indulging in a lot of retail therapy, especially during COVID. That's when I think, you know, the wheels were turning in, in full force because that's when I started telling him that this is possible and I really think I should do it. I really want to do it, rather not should do it because should do it was something that he told me, but I want to do it. It's interesting, you know, because COVID has been a time of self-reflection yes. for many, yeah. including myself, as yes. I said, and host this podcast. I started podcasting during that phase mm -hmm. where I just thought about sitting out there and sharing whatever I wanted to share right. without being asked not to say certain things. Right. And that's how podcasting happened. But the fact is that I probably would have always been a podcaster, mm -hmm. maybe not the term podcast, but I would always have been the person who would tell stories. Mm -hmm. I feel that all of us are storytellers right. in our own right. But I also feel that the most important story we tell is the story we tell ourselves. Right. So I guess the story you told yourself was that it is time for you to transition to something which you really wanted to do. Absolutely, yes. So you did mention about fun growing up time, great parents. How's uh, life post-married? It has, oh my God, I could go on and on. We could have a podcast entirely on that. I feel Maybe like... Maybe we will. I, I feel like I've married the best man on this planet. And I genuinely say this. People talk about how things changed after marriage. Nothing for me changed after marriage. In fact, there were a lot of things that were missing probably prior to me being married to Deepak that now I have with him. We have an excellent companionship. Uh, we are genuine equals in the marriage, uh, in our marriage, essentially in terms of not having gender roles in our home. We don't have gender roles in our home. Like... Um, he is very happy to be taking care of the kitchen, uh, very happy to be working, very happy to be doing anything and everything. So essentially, in terms of marriage, I think I'm extremely, extremely blessed. You can choose to knock the wood. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> because this reminds me of uh, my growing up days and I can't help mention my parents. And my mom got married when she was 19. She literally almost eloped with my dad. And uh, she moved to Calcutta and uh, I was born when she turned 20 mm. and she chose to not go to college so that she could raise me because my brother was born almost four, four years later. And um, 
you know they never had a fixed role my mm-hmm. dad okay. always had a traveling job and i remember distinctly when he was home he would take care of the home and he would let mom go out with her friends and just enjoy so that he could babysit both me and my brother and um and i think that was equal companionship so when you said about your husband and you it reminds me and i think um at the end of the day it's about partnership absolutely there is no gender when it comes yes, to exactly. it's about partnership your dream is your partner's dream and your partner's dream is your, your dream, dream. and um, if you let each of the individuals grow i think that's that's a wholesome marriage for you so Absolutely. that's wonderful um coming back to your medical school mm-hmm. was it just the covid or was it your experiences in the medical school or you pursuing a career in medicine when you re- realized okay i'm doing this but i don't think i'm meant for this it's basically the latter so i wouldn't want to blame the career per se but it, i i think it was it had a lot to do with my mental makeup at the time or over the years i just felt like i felt like i was an autopilot i felt like i was in a hamster's wheel essentially you know birthdays passing by paycheck to paycheck year to year birthday to birthday without ever getting a chance to pause and do things that i wanted to do Mm-hmm. I would probably my mother lives probably 10 minutes away. I mean we live in Grand Road in Bombay and my mother lives at Chopati. I would probably meet her once in 4 months. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is for everyone. I'm sure there are people who uh, manage to find a work life balance. My husband does find a work life balance despite the fact that he's a doctor himself, but I guess I wasn't able to do that as well. I felt very stifled. I felt like there was a certain dormancy that was hitting. I also felt like I wasn't growing spiritually. I wasn't growing. I I don't think I was growing as a person. I was there was nothing new that I was looking forward to. Do you believe in destiny? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I mean, I do. You can't sit in a chair and expect destiny to come to you. Obviously, you have to work towards it. But I do believe that something somewhere is already things are written. So, do you believe you your your current profession? Um, I was destined to do. You were destined to do. Yes. Yes, and a lot of things have led me to that. Whether it's the man that I married, whether it's the six-year-old memory I have of, you know, visiting the designer, or a lot of things, or COVID, or the realization that you know I was done with medicine, all of those things, they've all led me to basically be her. So, did you meet your husband during your medical school? Yes, I did meet him. So, do you believe school. that you pursuing medicine was destined? Yes, absolutely. Because you had to meet your partner. Absolutely. and even the person that i am honestly i mean i have, i have, i do have a lot to owe to medicine i mean the discipline or in general just i do feel like medicine has given me quite a bit mm-hmm. you know the things that i read the things that i learned i mean nothing is waste or the people that i met in terms of patients or relatives i mean it's beautiful i did have a lot of fulfilling experiences i've met some amazing people even in the form of mentors what is what is the memory of your first meeting with your husband so the first meeting I'll talk about the first memory and I'll talk about the memorable memory also. The first memory was in a random canteen at Hinduja Hospital. I remember he had this he has this lion tattoo which is gaudy and weird. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that across the table. And I remember having a conversation about that with him and I remember him saying that he didn't know why he got that tattoo so he didn't even have a reason why he had that tattoo. So that was my first memory. And the most memorable memory is when my eligibility certificate from DNB hadn't arrived. and there was a big hula hoop around it and i was supposed to be sending out these emails to natbot uh, basically our board um and i was losing my mind over it and he saw me i was outside near the t station and he offered to help he's like what's happening and i told him i was crying i i usually get 
extremely hyper when there's something not working out. And he calmly told me, okay, let's work this out. So he sat down with me, he bunked his lecture, which now in hindsight, I know he loves to do. He sat down with me and then he typed out all those emails that I had to send across with all the documents that I needed to sort of scan and send. Mm -hmm. And then just to calm me down, he's like, why don't we take a walk around? And me being me, bunking, I was done with my work. So I wanted to go back to the, you know, go back to the classroom and attend the lecture. And he's like, let's just take a break. Let's just walk around. So we were in this extremely horrible mall in the middle of probably Ghaziabad. It was horrible. But we decided to take a walk and it was shut that day for some reason. I think maybe it was a sun. I don't know why it was shut, but it was shut. And I remember us walking around the mall for a good, what, two, two and a half hours? Just talking about things. That's how we got to know each other. That's exactly how we started. We started talking. We talk a lot. We, you know, conversations. And that's exactly how I've grown up. Anything and everything in our house would have, we would have conversations. It was never my way or the highway. I never had that attitude in my house growing up. My parents never said, this is what we think you should do and you're supposed to do that. That's what I share with him too now. So to all the listeners of Between Us podcast, life is about conversations, guys. Yes. So uh, <laughs> do remember that. So tell me, while you were pursuing your medical school, and did you also get to work in any, in any hospital? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely, working? absolutely. Did fashion swing by your mind while you were working? Constantly. Clothes? It was always there. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. I mean, whether it's something as menial as browsing through Instagram, discovering new brands, or it's then getting acquainted to the more academic side of fashion in terms of actually watching international designers, their ramp walks, studying, uh, you know, their brand language and their core aesthetic and figuring out things. Or it's just trend forecasting, which I honestly back then didn't know it was trend forecasting. I would watch a few shows and then, you know, analyze them and just realize that this is what's coming up. This is These are the commonalities. And surely, slowly, they would trickle down and then think places like Zara would suddenly have those things popping up. So, you know, now we know that it's actually a profession. It's trend forecasting. It's when you sit and observe what the big guys are doing and what's trickling down, you know, right up to street, streetwear. So I realized that's exactly what I was doing in the last five, seven years. So while I was working, this used to be a constant thread, a constant, constant thread. Do you feel in some way, subconsciously, mm -hmm. you manifested this new career of yours? Absolutely. I do feel, yes. Because it's you? constantly been on my mind, right? So it's mm -hmm. that sort of an energy is constantly being put out. So I'm sure in, in some way or the other, I must have manifested this for myself. And even at conversations at home, I mean, if you, if you, if you were to go through my camera roll, you would find more screenshots and more articles on fashion than you would on medicine. Okay. For sure. So when you decided that this is what you want to do, mm -hmm. and it took you probably a year or two to decide? Yes. Did that in any way affect your then work? I will say it did. Um, I won't say I was as involved. I mean, mm -hmm. I've never I've never been distracted at work because I was working in the critical care department then. Yeah. So I, I couldn't afford being distracted. But I did feel that I was a little less involved. Mm -hmm. And I would wait to rush home to figure out, you know, because we had started researching. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I would look forward to more than my days at work. So I do feel that, yes, I was feeling a little less involved at work. What was going through your mind the day you put in your papers at work and the last day at work? Did you go through or reminisce your MBBS days, your postgrad days? I remember we discussing this and I'd put in my papers a month prior because I think we had to give a month's notice back mm -hmm. then. And there was this this 
uh, a mixed or rush of emotions because while I was excited for what was in store for me, there was immense amount of anxiety because I knew I wasn't going to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't want to have a plan B. You know, we always spoke about it and I always knew that should this not work out for me, I could always come back and be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have these exit strategies. I wanted to get into fashion without having to look back. So I knew that that would probably be the last time that I would be in a hospital. You form certain attachments even with the patients that you're seeing, right? And you're mm-hmm. used to, oh, you're going to come back to work the next day and you're going to see how well they're doing. Mm-hmm. I knew I'm not going to come back, not just to do that, but not at all in this scenario. And I'm not going to enter or step foot in a hospital in the capacity of a doctor for at least a while. Mm-hmm. So I did end up reminiscing. I was sad. I was excited and I was extremely anxious because I was still very unsure of where I was headed. Even though I knew I wanted to do it, I still didn't know what was in store for me. So it was a mixture of all of this. So before I really get into what you're doing right now, Mm -hmm. you mentioned about your patience. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, any, any one experience which you would like to share? Yes, I would, in fact. So this incident is actually quite, it's its the most uncanny thing that's happened to me. We had this one patient, I won't take names, but uh, we had this one patient who uh, was in the COVID ICU where we were working. So when I was in Hinduja, I was in Hinduja in the thick of COVID. So we would have one week in the COVID ICU and one week in the regular non-COVID ICU. Mm-hmm. So while I was in the COVID ICU, we had this one patient, um, elderly gentleman, who had a very protracted illness. I mean, he was probably there in the ICU for two and a half months or maybe Mm -hmm. more. Both in the COVID and then when he got better, even in the regular ICU. And, you know, we're kind of, um, I don't mean to generalize, but we're kind of used to a certain level of uh, verbal harassment. You know, it's become a norm when it comes to your dealings with patients' relatives. It's pretty prevalent now. Whether it's, it's outright violence or it's just these subtle things on the phone where people are being rude to you. So I've never really had very strong bonds with the relatives of patients. But there was this this patient's daughter, I remember, when he was shifted back to the regular ICU and, you know, she was allowed to visit him. I remember she would always inquire about the doctors first, mm-hmm. whether the doctor has eaten, whether the doctor has rested, is, is, is the doctor free to talk? Mm-hmm. You know, always extremely respectful, very mindful of mm-hmm. the things that probably the doctor is going through. And somehow, you know, there was a very, very, um, there was a connection. Mm-hmm. So, other than obviously what we used to discuss about her father, uh, I ended up giving, I don't share my personal number with relatives, but I had somehow in case she wanted to talk about her father outside of the hospital, you know, we're probably not allowed to do that. We're not supposed to do that, but I'd done that with her. And he got better. He went home. uh, When, whenever she used to come to meet him in the ICU and I used to be on duty, we used to talk about everything under the sun about the fact that she was in the US. So she basically born and brought up in Bombay, but was currently working in the US. Obviously, he was back in Bombay because her father was admitted. So we would have all these random conversations. He got discharged. He went home. And that was that. Cut to two years later, uh, a month back. Uh, my stepbrother, who's in the US, um, he calls me up and he tells me, are you free? Are you free to talk? And I was going to go in one of my fashion school lectures. I was late for a lecture. And I said, you know what? I don't know if it's a good time to talk right now because I'm about to enter class my classroom. And he said, you know what? This is going to take two minutes and you need to hear this. And he took the name of this person. He's like, this so-and-so person is sitting next to me. And I am not very great with names, but I remembered her name, you know, Mm -hmm. this relative's name. And he's like, you know, this person is sitting in front of me. And do you know her? And I'm like, of course I do. Two years back, I remember treating her father in the ICU. And he's like, she'd want to talk to you. And he's sitting in the US in San Jose in his house. She takes the phone 
we we connect and she's like hi and we both broke down somehow i don't know it was just such a heavy moment and it so happened that she was visiting california she's been friends with my brother since the last 20 years mhm they ended up talking about family she ended up telling him how unwell her father was but she ended up remembering that one doctor that helped her get through things mm-hmm. and she said you know i remember the doctor's name and her name is avanti and he said one second and then they tallied that i was in hinduja at the same time so she had my number which is again again something that i don't normally do so she they tallied the numbers and it turned out to be the same person which is me and that's when she said that i need to talk to her and she called me up and she was probably bawling on the phone but she told me how big a difference i made and in 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 that moment it's just about the connection i wasn't thinking of what i did for her or for her. obviously yeah, obviously in in a doctor's capacity i was doing the best i could but just the fact that your conversations your mannerism the way you're dealing with patients is actually causing such a huge effect on somebody and something that she remembered 2 years later and happened to be a friend of my brothers i think that's one of the most uncanny things that have happened to me so yeah. um i have a lot of friends who've had uh, not so good experiences with with their physicians with their doctors and some of them have come back and told me that at that point in time if they did not behave appropriately with a with a doctor it could be because of the emotions they were going through right right so um yeah i mean this is interesting so you decided to transition to fashion mm-hmm. and you went the old school way by enrolling yourself in a fashion school absolutely so tell us something about that so essentially uh, i always knew that i wanted to educate myself mm-hmm. in terms of not just because there's one thing when you like something and there's one thing when you study it and you realize one if you're good at it or two if it's you know if it's feasible to eventually maybe make a vocation out of it so i always knew that i want to educate myself mm-hmm. or maybe attend fashion school so we started doing the research probably a year prior to me leaving Mm-hmm. uh my workplace wherein we realized that it's funny that colleges in india design schools in india which are basically under the government like nift and nid have age caps mm-hmm. um i don't know if i would i mean it's correct or not but the age cap for nift was 23 and for nid i think it was 31 or 32 mm-hmm. and i was 33 okay so i knew that i couldn't apply and give entrance exams and get through these government Uh, operated colleges i all, i knew that i had to sort of apply to private schools so out of the private schools that um, we were researching we realized we shortlisted two which was one was pearls academy and one was istituto marangoni somehow istituto marangoni stood out for multiple reasons one was because i knew what i wanted to learn i knew i wanted to eventually not get into bridal wear and you know couture essentially i wanted to uh basically have an exposure to european or western rtw which is ready to wear and and you marangoni did just that essentially you had an international exposure because it's an italian school right with campuses in europe multiple campuses in europe so i knew that that kind of an exposure was something that i would have at marangoni but i was sure about where i'll get through so i essentially applied to both pearls academy which is in bombay and istituto which is at worli again in bombay uh but i got through a scholarship i got through marangoni with a scholarship mm-hmm. and of course i wanted marangoni so that's how i shortlisted so we i didn't have to give an exam i had to submit a couple of portfolios things that probably i have done in my past time and which i had uh, a plenty so i sort of compiled everything and i sent it to marangoni and i got through marangoni on a scholarship 
fashion school probably has been the best two, two years of my life. I can't begin to tell you how the amount of things I've learned, the people that I've met, the conversations I've had, it's absolutely been literally one of the best two years of my life. So so, so which year did you enroll for your... I started in 2021 and now I finished in 23. Mm-hmm. So 21 August is when I started. And right now in April I, is when, 23 April is when I finished. So did I had you, Did you have a gap year between your uh, leaving work? No. Nope. I had seven days in the middle. Nope. Uh-huh. You know, funnily, that's what we've been discussing. Other than the gap years that I had while studying, in between jobs also, I think the maximum time that I've spent is seven days. So even between this, it was a seven day gap. I, f- I left medicine, my Hinduja last date and my fashion school first day. There was a gap of a week. And that's mm-hmm. it. And I have four semesters, four semesters where I think I got to learn everything from design development to these fancy softwares. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your CAD softwares, you have your 3D soft softwares. I got acquainted with art history, which is something that I absolutely love. And learned pattern making, learned sewing, learned a lot of things, basically. Mm-hmm. A lot of new skills. But, so tell me something. Did you need to go to a school? Yes. Or did you feel that your inherent understanding or what you learned helped you no, uh, I think to I pursue needed to go what to you school. wanted to pursue. I think it's absolutely imperative. I mm-hmm. mean, I, you know, fashion is such a misunderstood field because everyone thinks it's just so easy to do it, right? I mean, it's just a general, it's a myth, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, it's everything that you need is there online, right? Or visual references, you know, most of us tell our tailor what to make. You know, we have a photo. But to actually run a brand, to actually own a brand, there is a lot that you need to know and there's a lot that is taught in fashion schools and things that you can't get off the internet. Like, for example, I was barely aware that to to basically run a successful brand, you needed to stick to a core aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You couldn't design jeans one day and then go and design lehengas the other day. Even the jeans that you would probably design needed to be in a certain aesthetic to be relevant in the market. Mm -hmm. So things like that. And even collection development, things are not easy to basically go from an idea or a concept or an inspiration that's around you to an actual garment is not a process that you can self-teach. What was the portfolio you submitted as a part of your... So there were these mock collections that I'd imagined that I would make, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know... These. Something you always visualized? Yes. Okay. Yes. So whether it's the palette, whether it's the silhouettes, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that I'm assuming that that's exactly what they like because a sense of color, a sense of silhouettes, a sense of style is something that I feel I inherently had. I mm-hmm. mean, without sounding pompous, but no, I think that's, fine. that's, yeah. So I think that's probably what they saw in the portfolios because mm-hmm. I feel that I can connect all of these things together when it comes to making a collection. So I think that's that's probably why I got the scholarship, maybe. How do you see fashion in general in the context of our country? Because I think there's a lot of emphasis, even from the government and other institutions uh, towards India, right. Indian fashion, Indian clothes, uh, focusing on the artisans, the weavers. So is that, is that something which you want to focus on? Is that something which you will do? Or is it going to be pure European fashion? So, you know, it's it's funny how everyone thinks that these two things are separate. You could have uh, an Indian craft that is embedded with a European silhouette or a contemporary European aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I've done even for my graduation collection. So, because the theme was so personal to me and it was based on, you know, my time with my grandparents in their homes, I did not want to get... And, and for me personally, textiles 
it's like a sinojo for me you know it's not mm-hmm. just about the designs right mm-hmm. so because i've always seen my grandmother wear these amazing jamdani muslins at home or you know the choices of these calcutta silks crisp calcutta silks i wanted to do justice to the textiles because this collection was an ode to them so for my collection even though the aesthetic per se when you look at the collection you're going to probably see see a european rtw collection the textiles were absolutely indian they were sourced from weavers so one of the in fact one of the weavers that i sourced my textiles from from also dyed them for me you know using natural indigo mm-hmm. so the textile that i got from him was hand spun which is with the charkha and hand woven mm-hmm. most of my textiles are hand woven but this particular thing was hand spun as well and it was indigo dyed so indigo dyeing is is one of the crafts that weavers and master dyers in bujori bhuj actually practice you do have master dyers mm-hmm. that live in and around kach where we are growing you know your indigo you know, indigo plant which is basically your indifera i think tintorium that's mm-hmm. the species that we're growing i think in southeast asia right so the pigment that is extracted from the the leaves essentially is then put into the vat so that so the pigment that you extract from the leaves essentially doesn't really adhere to yarn right so mm-hmm. you can't dye clothes with it so to dye clothes with it you need to have the indigo pigment reduced so there are vats that are built which are these huge vessels underneath you know the surface of the earth mm-hmm. where you basically put things that make the the solution alkaline mm-hmm. right and obviously reduce so there's no so- soluble oxygen to then make this pigment adhere to yarn that is so fascinating yeah yeah so there are people who are doing it and an indigo vat is like a child it's extremely unpredictable you have to nurture it mm-hmm. feed it so they use jaggery they use alum they use all these you know locally available things to maintain phs because it's very temperamental you you probably could have an a, a vat that's probably acting up so you can't guarantee the color you can't guarantee the behavior of the vat and there are people who are spending decades behind the science who working with with indigo so my one of my viewers was doing that for me as well so you can have both things together and i totally get that but um so you know i'm just saying i'm hoping that when you get your own label your brand there would be an ode to the artisans and weavers yes. because somewhere i think they need to be um heard and they need to be appreciated Absolutely. and people in europe need to know that these come come in from yes um because i think probably even before uh, these things were happening but i think our clothes and our weavers and artisans were not getting the kind of recognition they were getting absolutely so um but tell us in general about your experiences working with these weavers and artisans do do, do you feel how, how, what was the experience like you said you worked with a couple of them yes yeah, so unfortunately i haven't really gone and met them so mm-hmm. this was all telephonically mm-hmm. and video calls and things like that but the ones that i was working ones that i was working with uh you know they were really i feel very technologically savvy which can't be really said about most of them now mm-hmm. so you know he the one uh this weaver that i was i was talking about has his own instagram page which is very aesthetically done mm-hmm. so that's how i in fact found him you know mm-hmm. so he's very savvy when it comes to dming and you know the payment methods and the shipping and everything so this one was really um very very savvy and very forthcoming with that so i think it was the the process has been extremely smooth uh they're very patient they're ready to teach you they're ready to 
you know make you understand help you choose uh, they're not very stuck up when it comes to sending samples uh, you know because usually you see that people don't want to let go of things that they have and i've got a lot of free i mean obviously i ended up paying for them but he would be forthcoming with sending okay i'll send you shades i'll send you samples of cloth uh, we do so many weaves so they're very extremely friendly extremely easy to at least the ones that i've dealt with uh, very warm and i've had the best experience honestly and very seamless and you're looking seamless. forward to working with a Ab- lot more of them absolutely absolutely genuinely and i think the advancement of technology uh, helps a lot yes. right for these people to really come forward i was reading an article the other day i think just yesterday which said that uh, there is an e-commerce portal which has come up for artisans and weavers where you know they could directly sell mm-hmm. uh, with 0% commission to be right. paid right. and they can reach out to the, to their customers directly directly that's uh, there are a couple of non-profits also now working mm-hmm. there's neela house in jaipur there's loom in hand i think they're based in pune Mm-hmm. So they're non-profit, so they don't make, but they just create a platform where the weavers can sell their wares. Wonderful. Or they can host workshops. Oh, what what did you, what were the names? Nila House. Nila House. It's in Jaipur, mm-hmm. and um, in the uh, Loom in Hand. I'm sure there are. I'm not even scratched the surface. I'm sure there are plenty more, but these are the ones that I sort of through my research and through my weavers. These are the two places. So all of the prospective fashion designers and uh, and people who are already with their label. These are the two institutions you could probably uh, reach out to, uh, who could probably connect you with the right kind of, uh, the or the right group of artisans and weavers. Um, all right, I think this is uh, this has been an interesting conversation. Um, is there anything you want to tell people uh, to to my listeners about, you know, um, not just about. you know fashion or medicine but i think it would be wonderful if you could share um what should one do yeah. if they have dreams yeah. and sometimes they probably don't even know that this is what they want to do and based on my discussion with you i feel that um even it took you some some time to realize yes what you want to do yes. is there anything you want to share with Absolutely, with, with the audience. You know, I can obviously talk from experience. You can't have, unfortunately, a one size fit all fits all kind of an advice. But I can definitely, you know, based on what I did, essentially. So, to start off with, you know, I would want to give a sort of an organized answer for this because it's important. To start off with, I think it was very important for me to know what I was leaving behind, uh, in a sense, because this was something that I had. given 15 years to so for me it was important i'm not saying it's probably important for everyone but for me it was important to know what i was leaving behind and that's exactly why you know i spent not just 2 years but i probably spent what a close to 3 years trying to figure out if it was medicine or what i was doing uh that was causing me to not like the life that i was leading so even while i was working at asian cancer institute i remember wanting to leave to figure out if because i was at asian cancer institute for two and a half years so i thought it's probably the stagnancy there because i was there for a long time mm-hmm. so i left that to join hn reliance to see if a change of place would help me mm-hmm. you know get rid of the dormancy that i was feeling mm-hmm. but hn reliance i had a, a short stint and then i thought maybe it's anesthesiology let's just try doing critical care let's mm-hmm. just see if something new will you know reignite uh, the interest mm-hmm. that's when i did critical care in hinduja only to realize that it was none of this essentially so it was just i i was genuinely ready to leave medicine and that's exactly why i have no regrets because i tried everything that i had in the reserve to essentially know for sure that this is not something that i want to continue doing right so that's something that i feel 
is important. The second thing I feel is educating yourself because not just so that you're well prepared for a vocation because that's not why you're transitioning. Sure. It's important to sort of be well informed. It's also important when, you know, I realized that I got exposed to so many new things while I was studying. It wasn't just fashion design. Like I said, art history. While studying for prints, essentially when I was researching for prints, like we used to, basically we were, uh, we had the semester where we had to include prints in our design, right? So you had to research on prints, like digital prints, say mm -hmm. for example. And I got exposed to these, I, I I mean, I found these beautiful collage artists, you know, Catrian, De Blauer and Petra Zeno. I didn't know collage making. We know collages from school, you know, we know tearing up paper and sticking it. Collage making is nothing close to that. There's actual storytelling. And there are artists who are making a living out of digital and analog collages, right? So these are the things I got exposed to. So I think when you, when you, take education or you decide to study things properly, there are things that might just open up, which you've probably not anticipated. So that would be the second thing. And also I feel the moment, I think my parents and my well-wishers probably were on board when they knew I was taking a well-informed decision. So when you're trying to involve people and trying to get support, it's always good when you're sort of taking a well-informed decision. And the third thing was, like you said a while back, I think it's just we owe it to ourselves. You know, I was telling Deepak the other day that we owe it to ourselves to give ourselves that chance to live out our passions. I mean, if it's taking, when you're 70 years old and you're going to look back, two years is not going to make a difference. At least you know you'll have tried, whether it works out or not. So, yeah, that would be the three things. Thank you so much, Avanti, for your time. Thank you for having me. To all my audience and everyone out there, chase your dreams, live your life. Always remember that when you have a desire, it is a message from within you asking you to pursue that dream. So, you know, it's very simple. You want to buy a car because cars exist. You want to buy a house because house exists. You want to travel to a particular place because that place exists. So anything, any dream that comes into your heart, I feel that uh, it's a message from within. It's a calling for you to chase your dreams. You know, everybody has the ability to dream but very few have the willingness to chase it. So, until next time, stay happy, stay healthy. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Between Us podcast. This podcast was recorded at Manikpod Studios in Chambur, Mumbai. Our sound engineer is Mainak Chakraborty, and your producers are Arnav Dogra and Santosh Kumar. The Between Us podcast uploads episodes weekly, and we'll see you next time.